Let's do verses 1 and 2 in the chorus. We'll do 1 and 2 in the chorus. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Let us do his good will. He abides with us still and with all who will trust and not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toll he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey then in fellowship sweet we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the what he says we will do, where he sins we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. All right, brother. Do you believe that? There's no other way to be happy than to trust and obey. Amen. Thank you, Brother Vance. Appreciate our music. And you letting us pick out our own for a change. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open it up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. It's been a little while since we've been here. We've had so many activities. We'll have a couple of weeks where we get to meet on Sunday night. And then we'll have another activity. December the 9th and 10th is the Tyler County Christmas um, pageant, cantata, concert, I don't know what you call it, uh, There it'll be there at First Baptist Church Woodville, Saturday night, the 9th, and Sunday afternoon, the 10th. Right now, I'm the only one from our church being in it, so I guess y'all could still have church, 
and we'll just let Kenneth preach that night. I don't know. So we'll, we'll, well, maybe we need to talk about that. But, uh, huh? Oh yes. Well, you know, yeah. Oh, that's oh, okay. Of course, I want y'all to come. That's not what I was saying. Don't record any of this, Johnny. <laughs> I already started recording. Okay. Well, it's documented. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, that's going to be on the ninth. Uh, also, I just uh, was going to ask y'all. Um, I, you know, we've been going through the forty days of prayer and. Uh, I'd like maybe us to have a little gathering at some point just for the 40 days of prayer, maybe next Sunday evening after the evening service. Uh, maybe we could just gather together in the fellowship hall if, uh, or, or something like that. I was thinking maybe a cup of coffee and just sit around and talk about what the 40 days of prayer have meant to you after our normal evening service. I don't think there's anything going on next Sunday night, is there, that you can think of? I, if you can think of something, then then uh, we'll scratch that idea, just something nonchalant. Uh, maybe I'll pick up some cookies or something, right? And uh, we can just sit around and, and chit-chat a little bit about the 40 days of prayer. Before I get started here in John chapter 12, just curious, is there anything anybody would like to share about the 40 days of prayer? How uh, maybe that's uh, inspired you or maybe that's kickstart your prayer life or maybe how it's helped you pray for your church in a more specific way? You were going to say something, Kenneth? That's all God, isn't it? You got you to know. It's all God. So, well, that's I'm. Brings out the need of prayer. Thank you, Jim. Amen. It is, it is such a basic yet important need. I mean, we, we can't do it too much. We just can't do it too much. There's no such thing. Uh, it is the least we can do, and it is the very most we can do. Absolutely. Well, thank you all. Well, uh, maybe, like I said, maybe next Sunday night uh, we can just gather over in the fellowship hall for a few minutes, drink some coffee, eat some cookies, and talk about the 40 days of prayer what's meant to you, and maybe how the Holy Spirit has talked to you through that. Well, uh, we're in John chapter 12, and just as a reminder, we're in this section of Jesus' life. Uh, just before His betrayal, His arrest, and the trials begin, and the cruci- that lead to the crucifixion. And uh, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 26, and this is, <clears throat> part of this is a very famous section, right? Every year you probably... Um, uh, I hear I, I preach a sermon probably based around this text or a text like this about that triumphal entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and all these people are bringing down the palm branches or, or some of the gospel, uh, one of the gospels uh, says that they were putting down their coats and both of those are correct uh, and, and it's talking about a big festival by the way, it's going to talk about how there are many Jews uh, in town because of a big festival or a big feast, and that big festival is Passover. And that's one of the biggest festivals in the Jewish culture and on the Jewish calendar. 
And so there would be thousands and thousands, I mean, I don't mean like 1,000, I mean like hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over, uh, the, the, the dispersed Jews would come back into Jerusalem, they would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this special festival, and I would assume, given the crowd that is here tonight, you all would understand the significance of this time, at this moment. This is the Passover, and understanding what the Passover was celebrating, and understanding that later in the, in the New Testament, the apostles are going to identify Peter and Paul specifically, they identify Jesus as the Passover lamb. I think specifically 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul is in this, this broad spectrum of teaching and he just kind of bluntly spurts out, Jesus is our Passover lamb. And understanding the significance of this moment in time, they're about to celebrate this this momentous occasion that happened thousands of years back in their history where Moses from, had received from God this command to slaughter the lamb and each household was to take the brush of the, and dip it in the blood of the lamb and paint the threshold or the lintel of their door. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and then they were supposed to go into the house and cook that lamb with bitter herbs and eat that lamb. And <clears throat> what happened at midnight or whatever time it was at night, uh, during the night that Passover angel came in and uh, if the blood was marked, he would pass over their household uh, and go on to another household and they were therefore saved by the blood of the Lamb. Recognizing the significance of that past historic event and now here we are and Jesus is making this triumphal entry into Jerusalem just before the celebration of that lamb's blood saving them. And here we are, Jesus is that Passover lamb, and he has been sacrificed. I've entitled this message, The Beginning to the End of the Beginning. <laughs> I, I did that to be kind of funny. The Beginning to the End of the Beginning, because we see, what we see here is a major shift in Jesus' ministry. If I, was, if I was talking to a bunch of uh, seminary people, I'd say, this is a paradigm shift in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Up to this point, even though there had been several times in his life where they tried to forcibly take him and, and elevate him to the point of Messiah or elevate him to the point of King of Israel, there were several times where the people were, were wanting him to lead them. He would escape. He would avoid that public scene. He would say, it's not my time or it's not the Father's time. But what we see here at this point is in the scriptures there's a the, 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 the point has come. The time has come. Prophecy is, is, is being fulfilled. And Jesus embraces this catapultation, if you will, onto the scene, this acclamation of who He is. As far as God was concerned, as far as the Old Testament prophecies were concerned, foretold, it was time for Jesus to accomplish what he had ultimately come to earth to accomplish. And everything that is set in motion for you and for me really starts with what we call the triumphal entry. You know, because as we know, this ending that climaxes with the cross, and that's why I say this is the beginning to the end of the beginning, while it was a definite end point in history, that climactic point of the cross you and I know 
it was not the end. It was the end of the beginning. Because after that, we know Jesus rises from the tomb on the third day. He ascends into heaven after 40 days. And there's coming a point where he is coming back. So this is just the beginning, what we're reading about. And this is just the beginning to the end of the beginning. Where all of this is being set into motion. Well, let's read our scripture. We're going to read verses 12 through verses 26 here in John chapter 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb, and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 20, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Father, we thank you for this word, we thank you for your scripture, we thank you for your presence in this place, and Lord, I just pray that we would learn from this tonight, we would be changed by your word tonight, and that Lord, we would go out of here growing in grace. It is your name we pray, Jesus, amen. As we read through that scripture, I hope you notice several key passages, and what I want to do tonight is just point out, and I, when I say several, I mean several. I just want to kind of point out some of these key passages in this very familiar story and, and maybe talk about some things perhaps you've never talked about before, or maybe you have, and that's okay. Now, the first one is obviously verse 13, 12 and 13, where this great multitude, they'd come to the feast and they hear that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took the branches of the palm trees, they went out to meet him, and they cried out, it says. And what they are quoting here is actually a requote of Psalm 118. And I'm kind of curious because what we don't know about this little scene here, do they recognize what they are saying? Are they specifically repeating Psalm 118? Or is the Holy Spirit moving upon this crowd to have them saying what was supposed to be said about the coming Messiah? That's, that's such a key passage here. Because what they're saying, by the way, this, this word Hosanna, while it's an English word for us, you need to understand it's also a Greek word. 
You see, when the English people were trans or the people were translating this into the English language, they took this Greek word and they couldn't really think of a good English word for this Greek word. And so they basically took the Greek word and made it sound like an English word. Hosanna. It's the, almost the exact same word from Greek to English. But then as you study that word Hosanna, what you find out is actually the Greek people did the same thing. They took a Hebrew word from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, which is one of the only places that it exists in the Old Testament. They took this Hebrew word that they really couldn't think of a good Greek word, and they just made Greek sounds to make it sound like the Hebrew word. And what this word Hosanna means is, God save us. Almost really simply, save us. We need to be saved. And in Psalm 118 and through history, what this little phrase, this word, Hosanna, save us, came to be attached to the Messiah. And so when they would say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, what they knew they were crying out really and truly was a cry of salvation for the Messiah that only the Messiah could bring to them. Such a key passage, whether they recognized who this really was or not, and I believe they understood Him to be the Messiah, and I believe they really believed that Jesus was who He said He was, sort of. You see, we've talked about this before. They believed He was the Messiah. They just not, they didn't believe in how He was portraying himself as the Messiah. You, you see, they wanted that political rescue. They wanted that political salvation. They wanted them to kick, they wanted him to kick out the Romans. I read a commentary that said they believed that the biggest reason that Jesus was rejected by the Jews was because he did not come into Jerusalem and bring an end to Roman rule. I read somewhere else that believed that one of the biggest reasons Judas betrayed Jesus and turned on him is because Judas wanted to be able to say he was the servant of the king of high. And because Jesus wasn't taking that, Judas decided to turn on him. I don't know if that's true. The Bible doesn't really teach that. But it's an interesting thought because he was the Messiah. He just wasn't being the Messiah they wanted to. He wasn't the Messiah that they necessarily wanted. And doesn't that relate to our modern plight we see being taught about Jesus? Christian churches, non-Christian churches, they teach a shadow of who Jesus is. They don't teach who Jesus truly is. They teach Jesus is like Santa Claus. Well, if you live right and act faithfully, Jesus will bless you beyond belief. Or they teach a shadow of, of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is a son of God. He's one of many sons of God. Or Jesus was an angel that was uh, 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 promoted to the to the to the. The, the billing of being the Son of God. It, it, it's, it's, such, it's not just an Old Testament or a, not just an old uh, historical plight that they, they misrecognized who Jesus was. There are so many churches, they define the person of Jesus how they want and how it pleases them to do. This is a key passage, verse 13. Then we move on, verse 14, another key passage. Because what happens here is that for the first time, like I said, Jesus takes the acclamation. You see, they're coming out, they're singing His praise, they're saying, Blessed, uh, uh, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And up to this point, what would Jesus do? He would say, don't tell anybody, 
he would, he would take off, not afraid, it just wasn't time. It just it wasn't the Father's time. It, it wasn't the ordained time. But what we see is Jesus takes the acclamation. He rides in as a victorious hero. But note that humble ride he's on. That's not a valiant steed, right? That's not an Arabian stallion. And again, this is another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah 9.9. And this is a big deal. Because again, Jesus has up to this point, he's talked about timing. It was not time, it was not time, but now it's time. And thinking about this and, the, and this timing, here's what he does. Is he gets on that, that young donkey, which is what happens or, or what scripture says. I mean, John even tells us in verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And I can tell you right now, when John was experiencing this and witnessing this firsthand, he did not think about Zechariah 9.9. And we know this because the very next verse is a very key passage as well. Verse 16 tells us that the disciples did not understand. And, 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 and see what it says. They did not understand these things at first. They did not understand that everything that Jesus had done and was doing was foretold and it was a fulfillment of prophecy. How important is that? Well, think about this for a second. When Jesus was telling them a little bit later in scriptures about the coming of the Holy Spirit, one of the jobs he said that the Holy Spirit would do to them was that he would say, and this is in, in John chapter 16, he says, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. And a little bit earlier before that, it says, he says that the job of the Holy Spirit is to remind you of all truth, to teach you about all truth. Uh, there it is, verse 4. That's the verse I was looking for. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of, the, of them and that these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. And so here they are, here in the moment, they don't recognize what's going on. But verse 16 tells us, and this obviously is written, verse 16 was written after this, these things had happened. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, meaning when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, then they remembered that these things were written about him and they had done these things to him. You see, after the fact, that's when this knowledge came to them. I wonder, do we, do we take this prophecy fulfillment lightly? At this point, they didn't understand. After Jesus was glorified, meaning after Jesus ascended into heaven, and what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven? The Holy Spirit comes down. He, he uh, indwells all of the born-again believers and begins reminding them of the things that Jesus had taught them. And they're like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Prophecy foretold all of this. Oh yeah. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. Oh yeah. And I, and I imagine they just become overwhelmed. I, I mean, think about the latest prophetic writing about Jesus Christ happened about 500 years before he shows up on the scene. 500 years. 
Do any of you know what's going to happen 500 years from right now? It'll be, what, 2717. Anybody know what's going to happen in the year 2717? Can anybody remember what happened in 1517? Besides the posting of the document, the 95 Thesis on the church door of, of Wittenberg. Can, besides that, can anybody tell me what happened 500 years ago? Think about the overwhelming impossibility of knowing what was going to happen 500 years in the future, seeing this as a foretold prophecy, and they are just suddenly blown away. Wow. Jesus was fulfilling all of these things right before our eyes, and we didn't even realize it, and then suddenly, boom, the Holy Spirit reminds them, oh yeah, man, what a, what a key thought, what a key passage the majesty and glory of fulfillment of ancient prophecy just totally blew their minds. And really, it should blow ours too. Next key passage is verse 19. It says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. This is uh, a key for a couple of reasons. The first one is, is I love to see the, the Pharisees fighting amongst themselves. That, that's what this first part of this verse is saying. You see you are accomplishing nothing. The Pharisees were excellent students of God's Word and the Law of Moses. They knew the teachings, they knew the prophecies. They must have known that when Jesus took the back of that young donkey and was riding into Jerusalem and all these people were praising, that they must have known this was, was a fulfilling of the prophecy about the coming Messiah in Zechariah 9.9. We've talked many times about the willful unbelief of the Pharisees, how they knew who he was, yet they rejected who he was. And here it is again. And they are fighting within or among themselves. And they literally, they're saying this to each other. You are accomplishing nothing. Your works are good for nothing. You're, you're absolutely, you're accomplishing no good whatsoever. And then they mention a bit of prophecy themselves. When they say, the whole world has gone after him. Now what's really interesting, why this is such a key verse, is up to this point, the only people who are really going after Jesus are the Jews. The, the people that are gathered in Jerusalem at this point, it's just the Jewish people. And yet they're saying the whole world has gone after him. That, that's why I say this is a bit of prophecy. You see, the whole world hadn't gone after him yet. And so, accidentally almost, they speak a bit of prophecy about what Jesus was really trying to accomplish. What Jesus, not trying, what Jesus would accomplish. And that is that he was the seed, the promised seed of Abraham that would bless, meaning would save the nations of the world. That's who Jesus was. They didn't realize that they were making this little prophecy about Jesus. The next key passage is verses 20 through 21. And now we're going to see the fulfillment of their little prophecy. Verse 20 says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they wanted to see Jesus too. Here it is, the whole world. 
just a little while after these Pharisees had said the whole world was coming after Jesus, here comes the whole world. Such a, a key thought. This is what Jesus was here to accomplish. Not salvation for Jews only, but for the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And the next key passage is down in verse 24. This is a foretelling once again of his coming crucifixion. He says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. What happens if a seed is not planted? What happens if a seed stays in the sack when you buy that seed from the feed store? Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. This is such a, a key verse because I've heard this question before. If the Jews had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, if the Jews had accepted his truth and fallen in line, would Jesus ever have to die on the cross? Yes, he would. If Jesus doesn't die on the cross, there is no payment for our sin. If Jesus doesn't die on the cross, there's no propitiation, as John says, a mercy poured out for our sin. Uh, and there is no defeat of sin. There's no defeat of death. There's no defeat of the grave. Jesus had to die, and he recognizes it. Here he is, the triumphal entry. They are praising his name, rightly so, because he is the Son of God. Hosanna to God in the highest. And at that moment, he could have taken power and kicked Rome out, and all of the Jews would have fallen in line. But then there would be no payment of sin. There would be no propitiation for our, our need. There would be no uh, uh, end to death, no end to sin, no end to the grave. Yes, he had to die. And Jesus himself recognizes this. If the grain doesn't go into the, uh, into the ground and die, then there is no fruit. There is no fruit. And Jesus himself recognized this. And then the last key verses are verses 25 through 26. Not only did Jesus need to die, but we must die as well. Like the grain of wheat, unless we are willing to follow Jesus to death, there is no fruit and there is no eternal life. Did you catch what he said in there? Verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And a lot of times we think of that as just being a servant of God, of being a disciple of God, of being a follower of God. Oh yes, we need to give our life over to God if we want to be a good disciple. What he says is, if you don't hate your life, and remember, this is a holy hate, like I talked about this morning. It's not like a, a bitterness towards life. It's a holy hate. It's a, I love God so much that what I see in my own life looks like hate. It's that kind of a hate. If I don't have that holy hate, I don't, what does he say? There's no eternal life. That means there's no salvation. So not only must Jesus die, but we must die too. Die to ourselves. And so we see in the scriptures the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and a future look to the death of Christ and the calling of us to follow after him. And what Jesus does here is very hard. From a, from a flesh standpoint, isn't it hard when everybody's singing your praises to then say, yeah, guys, but I got to die. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that be difficult? And then, you know, I mean, everybody's, yeah, Jesus, you're awesome. Everybody wants to see the Greeks when I come see you. Yeah, you've got to die too, guys. 
And that's, that, is, that is hard. In fact, I want to just point out some things that are really hard in this last part of this passage. Verse 24, a call to death. That, that's hard. To, to say that, you know what, I've got my whole life in front of me, I, could, I can rule the roost, and to say, I must bring an end to myself. Willingly bring an end to myself. That's, that's a very difficult thing. Verse 25 he says basically that you, guys, you, you, you need to hate your own life. You need to love me so much that how you look at your own life looks like hate. That's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard to turn your back on what's good for you, for the glory of God, and say, God, it's not about me, it's all about you and what makes you glorified? Verse 26, a call to follow him. This is hard. If Jesus had said this and then gone to the throne and fed grapes 24-7, we would have no problem whatsoever with following him, wouldn't we? Oh yeah, Jesus, I'm all about that calling. I'll follow you. But his call to follow him was a, was, was a call to self-sacrifice, a call to dying to self, a call to service. And that's the last very hard thing, verse 26, a call to to serve. Did you catch that? If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Our calling is not to be glorified. Jesus was glorified after he rose from the dead. Our calling is to serve. Our calling is to work. Our calling is to do his bidding. And that's, that's hard, because who wants to be considered a servant? Who wants to consider themselves a slave, a bondservant? But what we must look at is also in these scriptures, verse 24 through 26, is not only are there hard things, but there are glorious promises. Glorious promises that, that the fruit of this death bring us that far outweigh the hardness of his calling. Verse 24, there's a promise to produce. He says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, bear, uh, wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It produces much grain. I don't know about you, but if, if, if uh, when I'm at the end of my life, I'd much rather be able to look back and see the spiritual fruit that God has been able to produce through me. That, that, that's a glorious promise that far outweighs the hardness of the calling to death. Then there's the promise in verse 25 of eternal life. That call to hate this life, that's hard. Because there are times that I want to do what I want to do. There, there are times that I, I don't want to spend time praying. I don't want to spend time reading God's Word. I want to turn on the boob tube, the one-eye mesmerizer, and sit there and just veg out, right? There are times that I, I just I want to do what I want to do. But the promise is, is if you hate this life, and that's hard, the promise is of eternal life. Verse 26, there's a promise of being with Christ. That call to follow Him, that call to follow Him is hard. But the promise, the opposite side of that is that He says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. That, that's a promise that I hold on to. That's a promise that I have hope in. Though I be alone at some points in my life, the promise of God's presence always, always brings hope. 
And then finally, the promise of being honored by the Father. I don't think there's any honor that would outweigh that. Any honor that mankind can bring us. And that's the, that, that's the promise that Jesus makes here. If anyone serves me, him, my Father, will honor. What better honor would you want than the honor of God the Father? You can take all the world uh, honors this world offers. I will take the hard stuff that Jesus calls us to. I will take that hard stuff for the glorious promises that God gives us in these scriptures. How about you? It's not going to be easy. It's not easy. That's why I kept saying this is hard. This is hard. These key passages, these, this is all hard. If it was easy, what's that saying? Everyone would be doing it. But this is hard. It is supposed to be hard. And though it will be hard, a life sacrifice for the calling of our Lord Jesus Christ, dedicated to Him, is fruitful, it is significant, and most of all, it is eternal. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the hard stuff, because we know of the eternal significant promises that it leads to. Lord, I pray that we would just respond to your spirit while we sing this song of response this evening. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.